Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I call your attention this morning to the 56th Psalm. I want us to think together for a few moments on the theme, Faith's Victory Over Fear. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He, fighting daily, oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O Thou Most High. What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. In God I will praise His word, in God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. The psalmist David, who is the human writer of this psalm, is a familiar figure to most all of us. When you think about David, I suspect that many of us think about his victory over Goliath, the premier event in his young life, and it certainly established his reputation as a warrior for God, a courageous young man, a young man who trusted God. And some of us, when we think of David, think of his long and storied reign as the king over Israel, in which he expanded the territory of Israel from 6,000 to over 60,000 square miles through his military prowess. And of course, some of us, when we think of David, think of his terrible sin with Bathsheba, in which he took Uriah the Hittite's wife and tried to cover it up by having Uriah slain in the battle. But I think that few of us probably, when we think of David, think of that period in his life, that is, it's not uppermost in our mind, when he was on the run from King Saul. But that was a very formative period in his life. Approximately 10 years, David lived as an exile, a fugitive and a vagabond. He was running for his life. He lived in caves and mountains and valleys. He took refuge and asylum in various places as he was looking over his shoulder because Saul was, well, he was a crazy man. He probably had some psychological problems in which he needed help because you never knew which mindset or mood you would get when it came to Saul. One day he was kind and generous and loving, and the next day he was insanely jealous and ready to murder David. And there's a kind of schizophrenia and paranoia about him. And it was during this period in David's life in which he was on the run from King Saul that he wrote Psalm 56. In fact, there's an entire section of Psalms here beginning in Psalm 52 all the way to Psalm 66 that were composed during this period in which he lived his life on the run. And he's afraid. In fact, several times he mentions fear in this psalm, the chief of which is the verse we're going to use as our text, verse 3, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And I think we would all agree that fear is a universal and a very natural emotion. Each of us can identify, right? There's not a one of us who hasn't felt afraid 
a little infant comes into the world very naive, but it's not long before it realizes that there are many things about this world to be scared of, right? The first needle prick, the first slap on the bottom. I don't know that they do that anymore. But the first pain, you know, is like a shock therapy, a lesson in reality that this world is not the Garden of Eden. It's not paradise. It's not wonderland. It's a very dangerous place. And a little infant fears what is different and unfamiliar to what he or she has known in the past. For nine months, that little child has been protected in the mother's uterus, and now the baby has been expelled into a world that's cold and large and unfamiliar, and it's a very scary experience. Xenophobia, the fear of what is different, begins very early in a little child's life. I'm sure you've had the experience of meeting for the first time a an ordinarily happy and friendly child, a little toddler that had the reputation of being, you know, very friendly, personality coming out of his pores. And then you were excited about meeting this child, and the first time you talked to the child, the child turned away from you back to mom or dad as if you didn't matter and threw their arms around mom or dad's neck, and you thought, what is it about me that scares this little child? The child is reluctant to allow the unfamiliar person into his or her circle of trust. Then as life moves forward, the child suddenly realizes that there are pains and scary things all around. It's not long before that child experiences the shock of his or her first fall, bump on the head or abrasion on the knee, and now suddenly blood and I need a Band-Aid. Then as you move forward in life, there's the experience of alienation in which you've realized that at school there are two or three kids that won't let you play with them. And you're left out in the fear of being alienated and rejected. And then as you grow older, teenagers fear embarrassment. You know, that my uh, clothes are not popular or in style or that my hair or that somebody will laugh at me for giving a speech in class. And then as you get even older, further, you begin to fear abandonment, you know, that uh, my loved one will pass on and leave me here, or perhaps relationships will break down and I'll be abandoned. And many of us struggle with the fear of failure. And ultimately, each of us can identify, no doubt, with the fear of death. That's been a number one fear in people's minds over the past couple of years. Everybody's afraid to die. In a very real sense, I think we could say this morning, much of what we think of as maturity is nothing more than learning how to control our circumstances and our emotions so as to minimize the unpleasant experience of fear. Much of our life is an effort to try to suppress fear. But is it even possible to gain victory over fear? I suspect, dear friends, that the biblical solution is the only one that really works. For this psalm teaches us that faith in God is the secret to gaining victory over fear. What time I'm afraid. Notice he admits fear. 
David does, but he says, I know the answer to it. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. I will turn my eyes away from the source of my fear and look at the Lord. Look unto Jesus. I will think about who my God is and I will turn my cares over to him what time I'm afraid. And by the way, dear friends, this is the only way to live in victory over fear. Whatever your fear is today, and many of our fears are an attempt to try to preserve safety and happiness, and by the way, none of us will be able to do that forever in a world that's under the curse of sin. Death is inevitable in each of our lives. Heartache is inevitable. God has not promised skies always blue or flower-strown pathways all our lives through. You know that, don't you? Those of you who've been around for any length of time have had your share of troubles and heartaches. And you say, well, that's why I'm so afraid, <laughs> because I'm shell-shocked, you know, I'm traumatized by the past. But my friends, may I say, you have a loving Heavenly Father whose will is in your best interest, who cares about you, he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Lamentations chapter 3 tells us he's not capricious, and he is not vindictive. You have a God who is good, and with an understanding of who our God is, you and I can live in victory over fear. What this psalm is saying is basically what 1 John 5, 4 explains in these terms. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, is it possible for you and I to be victors rather than victims when it comes to this world? Many of us have been beaten up by life, haven't we? You've got the battle scars to prove it. You know, you've got the scar tissue of past hurts to prove it. But I dare say that you don't have to be a victim to temptation, a victim to despair, a victim to anxiety and worry and fear. But you and I can be victors. We can overcome the world. You say, I don't think it's possible. Well, Jesus did it, didn't he? John 16, 33. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus lived as a victor over all of the pitfalls of this world. You say, well, Brother Mike, I haven't. Well, just because you haven't in the past doesn't mean that you can't start now and live a victorious Christian life. I want to live in victory, don't you? I'm tired of being beaten and defeated. I'm tired of losing to the flesh, the world, and the devil. My beloved, may I say that as we move forward, you and I, this morning, it is possible for us to live as overcomers. And this is the only way to do it. This is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith. So there are several expressions in this psalm from Psalm 56 because it teaches such a vitally important principle that is quoted elsewhere in Scripture. Verses 4 and 11 are quoted in Psalm 118.6, which by the way is the middle verse of the Bible. And I think it's a good center point for your life. It says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Verses 4 and 11, where he says, In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. I'm not going to be afraid what man can do unto me. Because in God I trust. Now that's the motto of 
our country on our coinage and on our paper money, on many of our buildings, in God we trust. But you know, you can't really force people to live that way, but that's our objective. The ideal of our country is our trust is not in man, but it's in God. That's a good idea, isn't it? But may I say, this would be a better motto of your life and mine today. Because you can do something about it in God I trust. May this be your New Year resolution and mine. That I'm going to trust in God. You say, well, Brother Mike, there's so many problems and things to be afraid of around me. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. Here's the answer to your fears today. Now, I don't know where my message finds you today, my beloved. I'm sure many of you, if you're like me, have various fears about your loved ones, about your health, about your financial situation, about the church, about some of the workload that you have right now, or maybe uh, circumstances in your life that are less than pleasant. Obviously, we're all concerned about our country, I'm sure. We're worried about its trajectory, about its future. What will happen in 2022? I really don't know, but here's the point. It's the only object of trust that will help you and I to deal with anxiety and fear and the emotional uncertainty that is so natural to us. We started early in life learning to be afraid. And you say, Brother Mike, it's gotten on top of them. The only thing that'll help you to keep that under control is to keep turning your mind back to God. And Psalm 56 is uh, quoted again in the 118th Psalm. It's also quoted in Hebrews 13:6, where the Apostle Paul says, God hath promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. What a wonderful verse that is. Verse 9 of our chapter this morning when I cry unto God, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, for God is for me, is quoted by Paul in Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now that sounds like a braggadocious kind of thing to say. God is for me. You say, Brother Mike, two football teams on the gridiron, which one is God for? You say, well, I'm for this team. If I were to ask you today, who are you for in the playoffs, some of you would say, I'm for this team, and some would say, I'm for that team. Which one is God for? Well, I really don't think God is partial to mascots or ball teams. doesn't mean that he is not aware of what's going on. And it doesn't mean that he may not hear the prayers or bless someone because they need the blessing on that occasion, or someone else has turned a fist of fury against him and he has refused to it doesn't mean that he can't get involved or won't get involved but i dare say he's not partial to uh, one team over another but i do believe he's partial to every one of his children god is for me if you can say that then you have blessed assurance that's that's a great blessing god is for me you say well brother goins where's the evidence that he's for me i mean i've had three flats in the last week well, take your metal detector out <laughs> and see if you can find some nails. Uh, so maybe some contractor has spilled some nails on the side of the road. Or um, you say, I've had uh, some engine problems with my car. I've had uh, 
my air conditioner, my heating unit is not working right, or, or my kids are misbehaving, or I've lost my job, or our church has been hit by a tornado. Where's the evidence God is for me? Romans chapter 8 gives us that evidence, doesn't it? When it says, for whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Five proofs that God is for you. Before the morning of time in the covenant of redemption, God loved the people. He chose them in Christ, predestinated them to be conformed finally and ultimately to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Every one of them was justified by Christ on the cross. They will all be called and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And every last one of them will be preserved in grace until they are finally glorified, made like to the glorious image of Jesus Christ. That is proof that God is on your side. God is for me. You know how I know he's for me? Jesus Christ took my place on the cross and took the punishment that was due to me. He wouldn't have done that unless he was for me and for you. Do you believe the world's for you today? No, my friends. This vile world is not a friend to grace. It's against you. Circumstances are against you. They often seem that way. Jacob said when they took Benjamin to Egypt after Joseph, he thought, had been slain and Reuben had been kept behind and now Benjamin, he says, me they have bereaved of both of my sons. Talking about Joseph and Benjamin. Of course, he had 10 others. Jacob wasn't a perfect father. But me they bereaved of both of my sons. They'll bring my gray hairs down to the grave in grief. He says, all these things are against me. Sometimes we feel like that, don't we? I want to tell you, God is able to overrule circumstances and even turn them to the good of His people and to the ultimate glory of His name. He's a God of overruling providence, and He did that in Jacob's case. But I dare say, my beloved, that even when it seems that you're being killed all the day long, you're accounted as sheep for the slaughter, you're just chattel, you're just property, you know, that you have no identity, even when it seems that everything's against you. I'm glad to tell you, my beloved, that the gospel reminds us that God is for us. That's why we need to come here at Priest. I need to be here every time the doors are open, if at all possible, because I need to be reminded God is for me. Because I start thinking that he's against me, or I start thinking that man is against me. But you see, in the face of all the potential fears, the reasons for fear that this world proposes the gospel reminds us that God is for us. So faith in God is the secret to gaining victory over fear. And then verse 13 of this psalm is quoted in Psalm 116, verse 6, where he says, For thou hast delivered my soul from death, wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling? God, you've delivered me in the past. Now here's my prayer for the future. As you and I stand looking back and looking forward, the year past is gone. There's another year before. This would be a good way to think about it all. God has delivered my soul from death. And of course, ultimately, he's delivered me from eternal death through Christ our Lord. Here's our prayer then. The God who's been our help in ages past. Lord, you're my hope for years to come. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? I want to ask you, why was David afraid on this occasion? 
We're talking about the fact that faith in God is the antidote for fear. You can gain victory over fear through faith in God. And I'm interested in that because fear can control a person's life. I know people who are afraid of everything, and I understand how they got there. Because I could be afraid of everything. You know, even the person who advertises, I have no fear. Those kind of people are usually the most afraid of all. You know, several years ago, there was a motto, no fear. Kids wore shirts to school. No fear. And they dared you to challenge them because they would read you the riot act or they'd punch you in the nose because they were not afraid. And I dare say they were the most afraid of everyone. And that's why they put on this uh, intimidating persona because they're so afraid that people aren't going to like them or that they're going to be on the short end of justice. Most all of us struggle with fear. You know, I'm getting older. I'm not at the point that some of you are, but as I get older, I start thinking more and more. I've had some medical tests in the last couple of months, several medical tests, and trying to, you know, trying to keep the boat patched so I can keep it afloat as long as I can. <laughs> you know, just realizing that my health tends to break down, and you're, you know what I'm talking about, I know. But um, as I get older, I start thinking about, you know, my mortality. I'm facing the fact that I'm mortal, something I didn't used to think about as much when I was young and carefree. And it's, it's a bit frightening, even though I know the truth, and I have to remind myself of the truth. I have to deliberately make an effort to go back to think about the fact that God is not promised perpetuity in this world, and that there's more to life than just the here and now, that I'm not just a body, I'm a soul, <laughs> you know. Part of me will never die, and there's another realm that is just as real as this one, and that death is not the ultimate tragedy. I know we like to, we think that way. The world feeds that fear. They make us think that this life is all that there is, but a true believer understands that there's more to life than just this world. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. I hope the, the government will get its act straightened out. I hope everybody will behave themselves better. I have hope in this life. That's okay. But if that's all you have, then you're of all men most miserable. Because this life is brief and uncertain at best. So my friends, you and I are believers today. We know what the Bible says, that God is real, that He loves us. His Son was given for us on the cross of Calvary. And therefore, what time we're afraid, we can trust in Him. Now, why was David afraid? The caption to this psalm is very important. The words before verse 1, you may see it in your Bible. Psalm 56, to the chief musician upon, and here's a big long word that I'll probably butcher, Jonath Elam Rikokim, and that's a musical notation, apparently. I'm not sure exactly what kind of instrument that that refers to. Mictam of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath. Now, when did David compose this psalm? When the Philistines took him in Gath. You remember the background story that gave birth to this psalm? It's located in the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel when the Philistines took David and Gath, and it, came, it comes during that period when, again, David has realized that Saul is trying to kill him. Now, why would Saul try to kill David? David had saved Saul's neck. And the entire nation, when Goliath threatened 
the nation. You remember? And no one, even King Saul, who stood head and shoulders above the rest, would not go out to meet Goliath. This big giant from the Philistine town of Gath would come out of his tent in the one side of the Valley of Elah, and he would throw out this challenge to the armies of Israel. He would say, send me a man that we may fight together. And if he wins, then we will be your servants. And if I win, then you will be our servants. Champion warfare in which the outcome of the entire nation hinged or hung on the outcome of one man's battle. And all of the children of Israel ran and hid like scared puppies in the face of this taunt. Even Saul stayed in his tent and, you know, did not take the initiative and lead. They were afraid of man. But David comes on the scene, this young stripling of a lad, from keeping his father's flock in the hill country, Bethlehem, Judah, he goes to check on his brothers who are soldiers in Saul's army. And when he arrives, he hears one of these taunts or public challenges from Goliath, and David is livid. He's incensed. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Off with his head. He doesn't deserve to live for taunting the armies of the living God. And the soldier said, who are you? You're a, just a kid. We're trained soldiers, and you sure talk big for a little boy. But pretty soon the news reaches King Saul of David's words and David comes in and he says, I'll take him. And Saul said, you're not able to take him. You're just a youth. And David recounts this story that when I was keeping my father's sheep, a lion came to destroy the flock and I slew the lion. I grabbed him by the beard. And then a bear came on another occasion and David said, I slew the bear. And the God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear that same God will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Saul finally allows David to go. I'm sure his poll numbers were reflecting that, that people were getting impatient with him. So Saul realizes he needs to find some solution. This one is his, it's the only option that he has. So he agrees for David to go. And David, you may remember, took a stone from his shepherd's bag and he slung his slingshot and the stone hit Goliath in the forehead he fell down face first, flat on the ground. He came and took Goliath's own sword, chopped off his head, hung up the head, and the children of Israel, the soldiers of Israel, came out of hiding and chased the Philistines away now that Goliath was dead. And the women began to sing a song around the villages of Israel, and this was the song that they were singing. The song started off like this, Saul hath slain his thousands. You can rest assured when Saul heard that song on the radio for the first time, Saul was happy, thumbed his lapel. Saul has slain his thousand. Verse 2, though, sent him for a tailspin. And David hath slain his ten thousands. Saul didn't like that at all. And Saul began to eye David because they've attributed to him ten thousands and they've only attributed to me thousands. Saul's been a great military hero, but David is... The best of the best. And Saul did not like being upstaged. Well, he should have gone out and fought Goliath if he didn't want to be upstaged, you see. I mean, he missed his opportunity. But anyway, he began to see David as a threat to his throne. And on a couple of occasions, Saul tried to smite David to the wall with the javelin. When David would eat 
at Saul's table. Here's the entire royal entourage sitting around the table eating the meal. Saul would be so jealous that he, would, he took his javelin and threw it at David. Now you'd think one time would be enough to awaken most of us, even the naive youth like David. It would be enough to say, okay, I'm not coming back here again. But David went back and Saul tried it again. The second time David thought, he's trying to kill me. <laughs> and David fled. And when he fled, the first place he went was to Nob, which was a town of the priests. And the head priest was a man named Ahimelech. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 20. And David shows up and Ahimelech is concerned that David's there and David says, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And Ahimelech says, all we have is the showbread. Yesterday's showbread that was on the altar and David says, That's, that'll be good. So he shared that with David and he ate. And he asked him, do you have any weapons? And he said, all I have is the sword of Goliath that was being kept in a closet somewhere there. And uh, David says, that's good. There's none like it. Give it to me. And he brought out this mighty sword and gave it to David. And there was a fellow there, an Edomite named Doeg. Doeg the Edomite who heard this and he went and told Saul, that Ahimelech had given shelter and asylum to David and had provided him with a sword. And Saul knows where David is and he sends an army then after him. And David realizes that he's being chased. And David flees to the very town, the hometown of Goliath. Notice the captain, when the Philistines took him in Gath. David goes to the very place. Now, you, it makes me wonder, what are you thinking, David? because it hasn't been long ago that you killed their champion. And then to come in with Goliath's sword, I mean, that thing would be recognized by the hometown boys in Gath. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10 says, And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Notice the fear. Verse 10, it says he fled for fear of Saul. For fear of Saul, and now he comes to Gath, enemy territory. Then it says when he heard what they were saying about him, he was sore afraid of Achish. He's afraid of Saul. Now he's sore afraid of Achish. David was afraid because he's alone and because he's being chased and hunted. Interestingly, this musical notation in the caption, Jonath Elam Rekokum, means silent dove on distant oaks. Silent dove. You've ever driven down the highway and seen a single bird on a high wire, or a sparrow alone on the housetop. That's a lonely bird. Have you ever felt like a sparrow alone on the housetop or a silent dove in distant lands? David felt like that. He was on the run, a fugitive, and he's afraid. James Montgomery Boyce cites the previous psalm, Psalm 55, verse 6, in which David said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, the silent dove in distant lands. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then I would fly away and be at rest. James Boyce says, David did not have the wings of a dove, though. But he had something better. 
He had the God who made the dove, and he found peace in trusting in him. My beloved, you and I this morning, like David, we live in enemy territory. This world, again, is not a friend of grace. The devil, the world, the flesh, we have a triple threat that presents us with the possibility of defeat and undoing. But I'm glad to tell you, whatever the enemy may be, you don't have to be afraid. Whatever man might do to you, it doesn't change the fact that God is on your side. God is for you. Like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, Fear not them which can kill the body. But after that, they have no more that they can do. The worst man can do to you is take away your physical life. So, well, Brother Mike, that's the worst thing that could happen. No, it's not because you're more than just a body. So fear not them that can kill your body. But after that, they have no, they can't go any farther. But rather fear him that after he hath killed can destroy both soul and body in hell. My beloved, may I say that if we fear God, if our eye is upon Him and we take Him seriously, there's no reason to be afraid of anything else. I want to close with two verses this morning. 2 Timothy 1.7 God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Isn't that wonderful? If you're afraid and anxious today, may I say that did not come from God. That's coming from your old fallen nature. It's natural. It's universal. We, we tend in that direction. It's, we learn it early, don't we? And it can get on top of us if we're not careful. But just know this, that God, if you'll focus on God's power, on God's love, it'll give you a sound mind. It'll help you to think rationally, where you're not in a panic. For what does the Bible say? He that believeth in him shall not make haste. That expression, make haste, means will not get in a panic. There's no reason to fly off the handle. If your trust is in God. And then I close with 1 John 4.18. Perfect love casteth out fear. For fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You know the most tortured individuals I know are people who live in perpetual fear. But perfect love. You say well where can we find perfect love? At the cross. God's love for you and me is a perfect love. My beloved. To think about. To trust in. To focus on. How much He loves you and me will cast out your fear. For a God who's that powerful and who loves you that much, there's no reason to be afraid of the world, of what people will say. What can man do to me? You say, Brother Mike, actually a lot. I mean, they can maim me. They can inconvenience me. They can ultimately kill me. Man can do a lot. But in the final analysis, what can they really do to you? If God be for us, who can be against us? Doesn't mean they won't try, but it won't matter. Because God is on your side. You ever seen a little baby sitting in mama's lap and just at peace with the world? That little child's not concerned about economic issues or political tensions. That child is not concerned with the potential for problems in the future. That little child is perfectly content because he knows that a loving mother is right there. How much better, my friends, should you and I be at peace and content this morning to know that our God is with us and that our God is for us and therefore perfect love, His perfect love, casts out our fear. May you and I learn 
this lesson, what time I'm afraid, I will trust in a trustworthy God. Oh.